This is our new Asia series from Control Risks, where we bring you insights from our in-house experts on the most pressing political, economic, and security risks we see emerging in the Asia-Pacific. I'm Dane Chamorro, a partner in our Asia business. From our offices in Singapore, Shanghai, New Delhi, and elsewhere, our team of specialist consultants help businesses that are operating and investing amidst a whole manner of challenges. This ranges from political and regulatory analysis to vendor screening, strategic intelligence, crisis planning, and cyber response, just to name a few. Today, we're talking about ethics in organizations and corporations. Especially in this time of economic fragility, we know that instances of fraud and corporate malfeasance typically increase. We're going to look at what companies can do to best avoid and manage these problems. And we've all sat through it in every organization, and we all know that usually the, the traditional approach to compliance training has been, you must do this, you must follow these rules, these are the consequences if you don't. And that is important, but we're increasingly finding value in not just training employees on what they have to do, but what they can do and what they should do by appealing to them to make better decisions. And we often refer to it as ethical mindfulness training. If you want to really simplify it, it's, it's almost the how would your mother feel if she found out you did X. That and more coming up in this episode from Control Risk Asia Pacific team. Speaking with Andrew McIntosh, who leads our Asia-Pacific investigations and forensic business based in Singapore. Andrew began his career with a number of years at the New South Wales Crime Commission and has since worked in our Sydney, Shanghai, Hong Kong, and Mumbai offices. Our clients come to Andrew and his team when they need help to find and resolve integrity issues within their businesses, such as the acceptance of bribes, intellectual property theft, or other types of compliance breaches. I started by asking him what fraud and governance trends he's seeing around the region as companies continue to resume and recover from the effects of COVID-19. We've started to see already over the last few months a rise in corporations detecting frauds, in some cases kind of frauds that have been ongoing by employees for a number of years. But because of the fact that organizations are going through tough times at the moment. Uh, they're, they're taking the time to actually look into their books and records, uh, to look at their relationships with third parties in far greater detail, with the result that they're picking up more irregularities. And they're also looking at smarter ways to analyze those books and records. So looking for, say, data analytics to detect patterns of misconduct or red flags or outliers in the sorts of transactions that they've been making. Um, I guess that's not just an Asia thing. We're seeing that all over the world. But I think in Asia, what we've seen is obviously the region that went into the present COVID-19 crisis first. And with all the disruption that's caused business, it has given an opportunity for the, for the businesses to take that step back and pick up on issues and, and problems that they didn't notice previously. In the case of uh, some of the whistleblower complaints you hear about, some of the uh, companies that were engaged in conflicts with staff have missed out on payments uh, and have therefore blown the whistle. Uh, not altruistically, they're blowing the whistle because they want their money in some cases. Um, but we do see that rise of detection of problems, I think both because 
more people are engaging in malfeasance uh, because they're worried about their jobs. They're trying to get uh, funds before they might lose a job. They're under pressure because they've had to take a pay cut to keep their job. And also, as I said at the start, because they've actually been engaged in that behavior for quite some time, and it's just starting to come to the surface now. And I think that's probably the two primary trends we're seeing in Asia. Basically, you're uncovering things that have been going on in many cases, as we know, for years. Sometimes there's collusion, uh, quite often there's collusion between internal and external parties. What do you do if you know, you're a general manager or a legal counsel or a compliance head you suspect something, there's kind of smoke, there's rumor, there's innuendo, but nothing hard that you can fix upon in terms of evidence against someone, either internal or external. How do you go about validating those those concerns? Yeah, this has certainly been something we've been seeing a lot of over the last few months. And uh, you know, in, in many cases, you find that that smoke or those concerns pertain to senior employees or employees in quite sensitive positions. Uh, and so it's often a question from people we deal with, how do I look into this without potentially tipping them off yes. or upsetting them or causing problems for that person? So I think it's a really good question. And, and the way we often talk to clients and corporates and counsel about looking at this is take an outside-in approach. Start with the more discrete methods of obtaining information, the less confrontational, things like intelligence inquiries in the market. Is this person or this business unit of your company, uh, are they known for engaging in misconduct in the market? Um, it's not evidentiary if you're looking at it from a, a legal perspective, but it can help to flesh out that smoke if there is any. Look at what you can access within the company without disrupting that individual. That may be financial records, which you can obtain centrally at HQ or can obtain surreptitiously without saying that it's because you're looking at person X. That could be their email. Again, depending on how your company is set up and how uh, your email communications or even file storage systems are set up, you may be able to obtain that centrally. So we often recommend that more discreet outside looking in approach as a first step in these types of investigations. And then once you get through those initial phases, you look at what you've got and is what you've got further support your fear of smoke? Can you see any fire? Is it time to dive deeper in? And if it is, then you move further along kind of what I call the, the invasiveness and value of information chart. You kind of work your way from uh, those less evidentiary intelligence type inquiries, the useful but not always in and of themselves, pure evidence kind of files, financial records, they give you patterns and maybe communications records. And you move further into being able to, for example, forensically preserve their mobile phone and laptop. Um, which is often where you're going to find some of the more interesting communications if they haven't put them across the corporate email system. In certain cases, you'll find far more damning documentation sitting on the desktop or within the local hard drive. And the example I often use there is a few years back, we looked at a laptop of a senior executive and on his desktop was a file called Corrupt Payments. And it was literally a line-by-line -line record of who money had been paid to, when, how much, what their role was. It was basically doing our job for us. 
But by moving your way in from the outside, you minimize the risk of business disruption. You minimize the risk, particularly if that individual hasn't been involved in anything of upsetting that trusted relationship. And you maximize your control over the situation. And so that's often a way we really recommend our clients approach it. Start outside, work your way in. And I suspect that part of that, uh, in terms of being less disruptive, sort of operating in the background, invisibly, that's where data analytics will play a, a big part, I suspect. Absolutely. And you know, what, we, what we're looking at more and more with data analytics is its role in both investigations, as I mentioned before, detecting patterns, detecting red flags and transactions and helping to direct the forensic accountants or general investigators to the primary areas of concern in the business. But we also see an increasing role for it in uh, proactive monitoring and detection of misconduct, uh, of it looking across the data that your organization has uh, on an ongoing basis so that it can say, hey, this transaction over here looks suspicious. And rather than waiting three years until it might come up in a, an audit or a whistleblowing complaint, being able to actually take a look at it in a contemporaneous period of time um, and address those issues before they become more systemic problematic issues has is proving to be really powerful for organizations. And the technology is increasingly available and increasingly easier to implement, regardless of the systems you're running or the way your data is structured, um, there are usually ways to make this work for you. Yeah, so I think that's a great approach, the outside in less disruptive before you actually gather enough evidence to confront someone uh, or a team of people as it often is. So given the current state of lockdown across the world and across a lot of geographies and the inability of teams of anyone to travel mm. in many cases. When you get to that point of needing to do an interview, needing to collect something that's on site that's not backed up globally somewhere, collect documentation or collect intelligence on the ground, how, how are we doing that in, in, a, in an era where, in, you know, in places where our clients or we don't have offices, mm. you still need to have that, that capability? It's a really good question. And I mean, we've, we've had quite an interesting experience of exactly this situation in one of our recent matters where the, the issue spans the US, Europe uh, and Southeast Asia. Uh, and on a, a Monday, there were no travel restrictions for this particular country and we were going to be fine to deploy our investigators and uh, digital forensics people. Um, and every day the restrictions changed a little bit more until by Friday, we were not gonna be able to deploy any personnel from offices outside of this particular country uh, where we didn't have any personnel based. So we took a trusted third party that we work with in that country that trusted third party is not a technical expert. So they weren't an accountant or a digital forensics expert or anything like that, but they were able to work almost like a set of remote hands, eyes and ears for those experts by going to the client's site, setting up kind of FaceTime, Skype, you know, video calls, phone calls with our experts and the relevant client personnel on the ground to sort out what documents we needed, what devices we needed to collect, what server information we needed. And then that third party would collect the documents and scan them to send to our experts, 
collected a, a set of software from our forensics people and was guided over the phone and camera in how to actually do a digital forensics collection of devices. Uh, was able to work with them to extract relevant information from server systems. And that information was then encrypted and shipped to uh, our nearest office. Um, and by doing that, we were able to still obtain the information really with no additional delays on what we would have been able to do could we have been on the ground. And then we were able to actually follow the sun to do 24-hour-a-day investigative work because we were working with our colleagues in Europe and the US with a client in Europe. And the investigation would start in Asia in the morning and in the evening it would be handed off to Europe and to the Americas and then back to Asia in the morning. So in that sense, we've almost seen the remote investigation enabling true 24-hour coverage. Uh, and so certainly we're having to come up with innovative solutions where we can't move, but it hasn't as yet led to any situations where we can't continue to conduct investigations. And certainly that's important because some of the regulators don't really care that you can't move. They still want information. I say the one area that is, is still uh, challenging is interviewing and particularly more confrontational interviewing. But with the improvement of video conferencing, it has been viable over the last couple of months through the worst of this kind of COVID-19 situation in Asia to still conduct more confrontational interviews, even remotely. Um, just needs a little bit more patience than necessarily the in-person interviews required. Sure, that's understandable. And I think you know, what you've mentioned there, the kind of necessity, the mother of invention, I suspect that some of these platforms will adapt uh, going forward as the the remote working, whether it's work from home or some other kind of remote working, will become more of the norm, I guess. You know, we've been talking about kind of uncovering and dealing with uh, this type of malfeasant behavior. But what about kind of prevention mitigation? Because often we hear our clients say, well, yes, we have SOPs or we have external partners that we work with when we uncover something. Uh, most big companies, public companies have whistleblower lines and things like that. But what about early identification, prevention? What can companies do about prevention as opposed to dealing with the problem as it occurs? I mean, I think first and foremost is sensible policy design. And what I mean by that is we, we, one of the biggest mistakes we see with companies that have large compliance issues around the world is taking a one-size-fits-all approach to the relevant compliance policies. What's going to work for your employees in a company in Northern Europe is not necessarily going to directly translate and be applicable to your employees in China or Latin America. Um, so ensuring that policies have been thought through and localized to an extent is really important. Ensuring the policies even exist in the first place is also really important. It still amazes me the number of companies we talk to who might have a, an anti-bribery policy but don't necessarily have a fully fleshed out code of conduct. And so they're then surprised that employees think it was okay for them to steal intellectual property as they were departing the company. The second stream is detection. And I mentioned the data analytics piece before, but I think Increasingly, there's no excuse for companies not to have and ensure their employees know they have a method of detection and monitoring for misconduct. 
there's a concern, I think, with some companies about, oh, does that show a lack of trust in our employees? And that's not what it's about. And that's not how you want to be messaging it. It's about governance. As you said before, the company has an obligation to ensure that business is being performed in a ethical manner, in a compliant manner, um, and they can still trust their employees. It doesn't curtail that trust, but it does mean that if you enter a transaction that flags as problematic, that the company will inquire about it. They will look into it. It's possible some of those transactions will be okay and they've just been entered incorrectly. But ultimately, it's about that compliance, governance, ethics perspective. And then finally, and this kind of ties to that, is the training. Making sure that your employees understand what is expected of them and not just what they must do, but what they should and can do. And we've all sat through it in every organization. And we all know that usually the, the traditional approach to compliance training has been, you must do this. You must follow these rules. These are the consequences if you don't. And that is important. Absolutely. It's, it, it's got a very important place in the training regime. But we're increasingly finding value in not just training employees on what they have to do, but what they can do and what they should do by appealing to them to make better decisions. And we often refer to it as uh, ethical mindfulness training, where you're equipping employees to bolster their own resilience to say request for bribes, to encourage them to tap into their own values uh, in terms of how they should behave. If you want to really simplify it, it's, it's almost the how would your mother feel if she found out you did X. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think that tr that element of training has been so well received. Everywhere we've delivered around the world, we see audiences really engage with it and really sort of say, I didn't realize how important ethics was to day-to-day -day decision making. Uh, and now that I think about it, I realize that I use it in a lot of the decisions I make in my personal life every day, and I want to use it more in my work life. So to summarize some of Andrew's points here, the global slowdown is giving companies a chance to scrutinize vendors, relationships, and transactions, identifying misconduct that in some cases has been present for years. Simpler technologies has made data analytics increasingly common as a tool to monitor transactions in real time for signs of malfeasance. And don't forget some of the governance basics like codes of conduct in local language and mindfulness training for employees. Thanks all for listening to this episode of our Asia podcast series, and we'll be back with more in the coming days. In the meantime, please go to our website, controlrisk.com, for more analysis, or you can subscribe to all our podcasts on Acast, iTunes, or Spotify. Just search for Control Risks.